<laughs> What's so funny? and welcome to another episode of the Cinema Psych Podcast, the podcast where psychology meets film. I am your host, Dr. Alex Swan, and uh, yeah, today's episode is going to be about um, an interesting, an interesting film. Came out last year. Joaquin Phoenix won all of the Best Acting Awards for it. Yeah, that's right. We are laughing along with The Joker. The Joker. Or just Joker, I guess. Just Joker. So, um, spoiler alert to anyone who hasn't seen it yet. Uh, we are going to be talking about aspects of the film that sort of ruin it in a sense. Not may okay, okay. Maybe not ruin it, but um, at least uh, modify how you would view it the first time around. If you don't care about that, keep on listening. If that um, if that bothers you a little bit, then uh, you know, pause this and come right back after you've done watching it. It is out on um, video. DVD, whatever you want to call it these days, um, download, streaming, whatnot. So, yeah. So the movie came out last year, all right, and um, by Todd Phillips. Yeah, the same guy who did Hangover. Like, who would have thought, right? Uh, but, yeah, same guy. And, again, like I said, Joaquin Phoenix stars as the titular bad guy. Like, like I, I want to say upwards of one of the most known villains of all 20th century 21st and 20th century literature i mean we know a lot about him right from his uh dealings with batman for decades upon decades upon decades and there have been plenty 
There have been plenty of iterations of Joker. You got the Cesar Romero Joker. You've got the Jack Nicholson Joker. You've got the um, Joker who shall not be named <coughs> Jared Leto <coughs> uh, in Suicide Squad, and um, you know a, a few here. Mark Hamill, perhaps my favorite Joker. Mark Hamill voiced Joker in all of the Batman animated series um, through a good portion of the last twenty. 25 years he's been doing he's been doing it for a while um and then we have this one we have this one by joaquin phoenix and so we're gonna explore the aspects of that and i'm i'm really excited um and uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting topic to discuss these days uh because uh society is not doing so hot is not doing so hot. So we're going to chat about that. My guest host today is friend of the show, Dr. Wynn Goodfriend. Wynn, how are things going in the age of co- of the COVID pandemic? You know, uh, I hesitate to be um, too happy, <laughs> but I, I honestly am doing okay. Uh, just the sheer, yeah, good. The sheer no, that's fine. The sheer reduction of meetings at work has made me a lot more productive. So uh, I'm getting a lot of work done. I I miss my students. That's the main thing. Is uh, you know, I got into this profession um to work with students, and I only get to do that virtually. So that's the part that's bringing me down. But otherwise, I'm doing okay. Excellent. I'm glad to hear that. Well, the uh, film that we are talking about today, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, is Joker. Uh, I sillily, I very silly called it the Joker, but it's actually just Joker, right? And um, I, I, I wanted to bring you on to to, to talk about Joker because um, you had a book uh, or a book chapter uh, that you'll you'll talk about at the end. We'll probably. Uh, sprinkle it in here and there about the relationship and specifically the domestic violence uh, regarding um, the relationship between Joker and Harley Quinn. Now, of course, the movie does not explore any of that because this is pre-Joker being a Batman villain, right? Bruce Wayne in the film is is a little boy, right? Right, it's the origin story for Joker. Yeah, so it's the origin story for Joker. But I wanted to bring you on because you talked about that book chapter in a previous episode. And um, I thought, you know what? That, that'd be a great conversation, buddy, to have for this particular film, right? And, and I think before we jump into any of the psych, I, we do need to say that I gave a, a spoiler alert uh, disclaimer earlier. But I think uh another disclaimer is worth it and that is that we are not clinical psychologists right absolutely not i have zero training in clinical or counseling psychology yeah we do not do any of that at all so uh but i think um even even with that said i think it is uh, useful to explore some of the tangentially related topics. And I think the things that you and I picked out from the film were um, 
maybe not necessarily clinical. Like we're not sitting here diagnosing Arthur Fleck uh, for, you know, what kind of disorder he has. So, you know, I think we can, I think we can uh, safely discuss some of the other psychological um, concepts that are present in the film. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Uh, This film is chock full of possible psychological topics and it's just, uh, absolutely complicated and and layered and nuanced. And so um, any sub area of psychology, I think would have things to say about this. Yeah. And I think um, that, that fits a larger, uh, that fits a larger idea um, about superheroes and super villains. I know a lot of it's written about superheroes and, and their particular, uh, their particular brand of psychology, but um I would say that supervillains also fit uh, something to to chat about, too. So not much is written about supervillains and not much is explored in their origins or their underpinnings and so or their, you know, their psychology. And so uh, I think that's it was a useful movie to put into perspective, maybe not a modern telling of the joker but a recent retelling of the joker uh because it's it's set in what appears to be the 1980s maybe the late 1970s so you know we have this um recent idea about the joker and his origins and the psychology that might change a person or in influence a person to act in certain ways. And so th- I think those are the things that um, we can explore uh, in this episode. And, and so the first thing I think that, um, that you can speak to specifically wind considering the, the book chapter about Joker and Harley Quinn is um, the violence in the movie. What what would you what would you say about the violence in the movie? Well, as you've said, my area I'm a social psychologist and my specific area of mm-hmm. expertise is on relationships and I've been doing a lot of research for the last 15 years on relationship violence, abusive relationships, um domestic violence, whatever term you want to use. And one of the things that I thought really stood out in Joker is the fact that we see intergenerational transmission. So um, that's a term oh, that's right, a term okay. that we use in terms of um, if you grew up in a family of origin that had violence where you experienced it or even witnessed it, it makes you much more okay. likely to be a violent adult or to be the victim of violence as an adult. So um, you okay. are more likely to be either a perpetrator or a victim survivor of relationship violence yourself. So in Joker, although um, okay. he, his relationship with Sophie is a little bit complicated as I think we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, sure. Yeah. The fact that he grew up with violence from when he was an infant, um, reflects his higher likelihood of becoming a violent adult. Yeah, that's true. I, um, and you see kind of in the beginning of the film, he, he seems quite pacifistic um he doesn't he he is the victim of violence immediately um but he tries to stay away from it as best he can especially in the um on the bus right 
uh, where we first learn about his laughing disorder. And then on the train, which instigates the whole movie, right, where he kills the three. Uh, he, he doesn't want to deal with them, but they come and bother well, him. Well, and, and um, even the very first scene of the movie is he's he's holding the sign outside of the store and the the kind of gang of youths steals his sign and beats him up. Um, so, right. So the and very so, beginning is violent. Yeah, the very beginning is definitely violent. And the, um, the first time that he's violent, you know, when you're talking about that, that train scene, um, arguably he is violent to protect the the women the woman that they these other guys are harassing right so i'm oh, right. not trying yes. to defend the, what he does don't get me yeah. wrong um but you right. could argue that that's kind of the instigator for him yeah that's true so with respect to arthur being um violent and oh, well, a victim of violence first and then a perpetrator second, as we see as the movie progresses, he kills the three men and then he um, kills the large um, uh, for, uh, uh, ex uh, co-worker who worked at the clown business with him. He kills that guy. And then, yeah, and then he kills um, Murray, Robert De Niro, um, at the end being interviewed on the uh, the talk right. show right and he also acts very violently toward uh his relationship with sophie um his supposed girlfriend throughout the film we learn later that um that she's not that well, his relationship with her is not real she's real but his relationship with her isn't real um and then um the i think i know that that um the final act of on-screen violence is Murray. But I think the crescendo of violence is actually against his own mother. I think that's certainly one of the climactic points in the movie is when he decides to kill his own mother. Uh, that's yeah. a turning point for him uh, where he's, he's kind of saying goodbye to his past. He's saying, um, goodbye to the person he thought he was this whole time, and he's really deciding to become Joker. Yes, because we learn sort of partway through the movie, almost halfway through the movie, that um, that his mother um, actually suffers from some sort of delusional or schizophrenic um uh, disorder some sort of psychotic disorder. yeah when he goes to the uh, mental hospital and gets her records yeah. the official diagnosis mm -hmm. is delusional psychosis and narcissistic personality disorder okay so that's a lot to unpack right. there um so delusional psychosis so that would be um, that's the false yeah, so that would be like the false beliefs. Yeah. So the main false belief that she has is that Arthur is the love child of her and Thomas Wayne. Right. Uh, Thomas Wayne being the father of Bruce Wayne, Batman, right? right? Uh, we do meet both of those people. We meet Thomas Wayne and we also meet Bruce, who is a young mm -hmm. boy um, in a really creepy scene. Um, where Arthur goes to Wayne Manor and like sticks his fingers in Bruce's mouth to make him smile. That's yeah. just like, yeah, to make him smile. And um, 
I read very c- briefly before we started recording that um, there's a, the there's a crowd on the internet that believes that um, uh, all the Joker wants to do is make Batman laugh. <laughs> well, that's and Batman's just not having any of it. <laughs> that's an interesting so, uh, view. I- yeah. So uh, so. <laughs> So so Arthur g- goes there and he's and, you know so so back to his mom uh Penny Fleck uh she she says she te- constantly tells him that um eh, he is the love child of them while she was um a uh I guess a uh, caretaker or a maid at Wayne Manor Yeah it's kind of unclear what her job was the a secretary or a maid or something like that um Yeah Okay, so just to play devil's advocate here, just just one of the things that I love about this film is I think one view is uh, she's completely made this up. Um, you know, he's mm-hmm. he's not related to the White Wains. Um, she was delusional mm-hmm. and and sort of fabricated this whole thing. But when he mm-hmm. confronts her about it, she says, you know, oh, that adoption paper that you saw um that was completely fabricated so that he would protect his his own reputation and one potential view is that uh, she was telling the truth and um that wayne certainly has enough power and money to just kind of whitewash this whole love child thing because it would hurt his reputation So the other part of her diagnosis that I think is really interesting is the narcissistic personality disorder, because she does not come across as narcissistic to me at all. Mm. But I think that might also feed the the other narrative or the the first narrative that you said, which was that um, she's not he's not sorry. He's not the love child. He being Arthur Fleck, um, not the love child of. Penny and Thomas Wayne because uh, because the narcissism is directing as far as I understand it the, nar- the narcissism is directing her to feed into the delusion right I think that that's what they're arguing in the film but her sure her character doesn't seem narcissistic to me in any other way she seems very meek very submissive uh, I don't see narcissism coming from her now maybe it's because that was 30 years ago and She's different now. Sure, uh, but uh, so the, there's some flashbacks uh, of that scene when he's reading the dossier uh, of Penny Fleck, and um, they flash back to her being interviewed by a psychiatrist. adopted him. We have all the paperwork right here. That's not true. Thomas had that all made up. So it stayed our secret. You also stood by one of your boyfriends repeatedly abused your adopted son. <laughs> 
battered you. <laughs> Penny, your son was found tied to a radiator in your filthy apartment, malnourished with multiple bruises across his body and severe trauma to his head. I never heard him cry. He's always been such a happy little boy. Like, it's made explicit that her boyfriend uh, harmed him and you left him chained to a radiator for um, a long time. And um, her response is, he was such, he was always a happy boy. And the reason she saw that, or maybe she said that, was because she saw him just, like, laughing uncontrollably, chained to this radiator, thinking that it was a game that her boyfriend put him up to. So He might have also developed this weird condition as some kind of defense mechanism or coping mechanism. So, uh, as far as I know, again, not a clinical psychologist or, or medical doctor, but as far as I know, there isn't this kind of laughing disorder. I think they made that up for the character. Yeah. Todd, Todd Phillips has, has come out and said that um, there isn't any sort of um, condition that he was aware of when they made the, when they were writing the yeah. film and writing this whole thing. Uh, and, and Joaquin Phoenix also has said that um, he, he could make it his own if it wasn't real. Sure. And and so I think certainly, uh, sort of regardless of the Wayne question, he was definitely exposed to a lot of violence as a child. I think it's clear yeah. that she was the victim of violence. When we see that flashback, she's got bruises all over her. Um, I think it's, right. it's clear that uh, social services saw the abuse that he was experiencing as a child. And so either way, the intergenerational transmission of violence is there. He was exposed to all of this violence as a child. He might have internalized these attitudes uh, that violence is an okay way to communicate or to to try to solve problems. He might he might be modeling what he saw there from his adoptive father or or his mother's boyfriend. Um, yeah, and uh, depending on who his biological father really was, he might have in fact in- inherited some kind of you know, extra testosterone or something like that. We don't really know what the genetic link is for intergenerational transmission. Yeah, we're not given that information uh, about his past that has any, that has any reliability associated with right. it, right? Uh, Arthur is a unreliable narrator. Um you know he doesn't narrate the film but he's but he's an unreliable source as far as the um storytelling is concerned we don't actually we don't get an accurate picture of his life because we find out specifically that he made up a relationship with a woman that lived down um the hallway from right. him and it's right. interesting so everything he knows everything he knows is um uh put through a different lens for the viewer. Right. 
it's interesting to go back and watch it a second or a third time because the, the first time I saw the film, I didn't realize that he was hallucinating this entire relationship with Sophie. So, you know, it's, it's presented to the audience as, you know, he's, he just wants love. He's, he's a reasonable, he's, he's wholesome. a reasonable guy, you know, he has this crush on this woman with his adorable little daughter. And it's kind of this line of hope that you see. And then you know, the second time you watch it, you realize his, his whole demeanor is different. Every time he's with her, he's confident. Yeah. He's, he's genuinely funny instead of creepy funny. Um, and that's right. because it's all in his mind. It's the guy he wishes he were. Mm-hmm. That is that is so true. That is so true. And but once but once you once you are um, once that mask is removed and it's revealed that he is not that guy everything becomes suspect everything becomes suspect he gets into the refrigerator he goes and sleeps inside a refrigerator his refrigerator (laughs) you know we don't actually know if he got the call it like the the call to be on the um murray show was real if he was actually on the murray show all of this stuff everything after you've learned that he is not that guy right. is uh and, it, and it in fact makes me question the entire movie up until the very last scene when he's in the mental hospital is the entire movie. Yeah, so super spoiler alert everyone. Super spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> um so yeah, there is a um conundrum on the internet. As movie analysts are wont to do, the big question is, is the entire film all in his head? And there are people who think that there are clues. Um, So I watched a I watched one a few weeks ago. I don't remember exactly when it was, but I watched one where um, if you look at all if, if there is a clock. In any of the scenes. It says eleven eleven. Huh. I did not know that. Um, yeah. Um, and I mean, you can't see it in the end. You can't see it in the end. But um, when he is at the social service, uh, the the social worker's office, it's eleven eleven. Um, when he is getting fired from work, it's eleven eleven. Um, that you can see it on the time clock. Um, the you know where you they punch yep. in and out. Uh, and then there's another clock and I, I'm, I'm blanking, um, what scene it's in, but it says 11, wow. 11. I did not notice that. Yeah. Go back, through, watch it, watch it again, go back through and, and you definitely will, you definitely will catch these little things. And, um, the last little bit of that thing is he's laughing, he's laughing, he's laughing, he's laughing, laughing, laughing. Uh, so he's laughing and he's laughing and he's laughing and, um, the, uh, the social worker or the psychiatrist that's in the room with him is like, what's so funny? This woman, by the way, kind of looks like the social worker from before, but I don't think it's the same person. It's not. I, I, I checked the actresses there. Okay. Okay. I didn't think they intended that to be the case. But um, he asked her what's or she asked her uh, him what's so funny 
And he says, you wouldn't get it. And it's like, whoa. Did he just make that whole right? thing up? Maybe that's why he's laughing. He just had this very amusing fantasy, which was what we saw mm-hmm. as the movie. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And um, I think that uh, brings us to a very good segue in the chat, which is, I think, one of the bigger aspects of the film that I picked up on, which was uh, just the dour um, attitude toward mental illness that is presented in the film. Um, and how much stigma mental illness carried, right? Again, this film is um, late 20th century, uh, but still also carries, right? It carried maybe more than today, but also just it still carries it, Absolutely. Right? There's a lot of research from um, lots of areas of psychology, including social psychology, that shows a pretty definite stigma against mental illness and people with mental illness. And, and you don't even have to be a psychologist to see this in coverage of um, violent acts. Usually some piece of that coverage will imply that the person who did the violent act is mentally ill, which therefore also implies all people with mental illness are violent, dangerous people. Right. And that's obviously false. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever, any of these um, stigma folks have ever, people who have stigma to, uh, or express the stigma. I don't know. Am I, am I saying that right? I don't know if stigma can be a verb, but um, you know what I'm saying, right? People who, who hold the negative beliefs and attitudes toward, toward mental yep. illness. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, have they ever seen how thick, the DSM is because it's a thick book. It's a thick book full of um, various, full of various diagnoses and illnesses and issues. And, and um, not all of them have anything to do quite, quite, I would say the majority of them have nothing to do with violence. Right. Well, again, I'm not the biggest expert on the DSM five, but I think in general, the people who are are making the associations between mental illness and violence are not experts in psychology or clinical. Yeah, that uh, that, makes, that checks out. Also, um, even though I don't have any formal training on mental illness or clinical psych, um, when I was in grad school, just to pay the bills for two years, I worked as a security guard in, t- in a mental hospital. And uh, wow, I want to hear that story <laughs> later. Yeah, well. It is kind of an interesting story how I even got that job, but I worked there for two years and um, I had, I had a day shift. So the patients were up and around and honestly, in two years, I never felt concerned about the patients uh, hurting me. It was really um, just to, I did things like walk them to the cafeteria you know, um, things like that. So I was there uh, for, I think, people's kind of peace of mind um, and just in case mm-hmm. anything violent happened, but nothing ever did. And, and so it really, it, it hurts uh, people who have mental illness to, to have this association. Um, I think it further, um, you know, sends the message that they're, they're 
unpredictable, they're untrustworthy, you shouldn't hire them, you know, you shouldn't befriend them. Um, and that's just going to make yeah. matters worse. And and it's a really oversimplification of people who are violent to just blame it on mental illness, because there are so many people with mental illness who who choose not to be violent. And so it's really a societal problem. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, the the scene that uh, I wanted to highlight is uh, when, as is early in the film, Arthur goes to the social worker that that I, I mentioned uh, a little bit ago. Is it just me? Or is it getting crazier out there? It is certainly tense. Hmm. People are upset. They're struggling, looking for work. These are tough times. How about you? Have you been keeping up with your journal? Yes, ma'am. Great. Did you bring it with you? Arthur. Last time, I asked you to bring your journal with you for these appointments. Can I see it? I've been using it as a, as a journal, but also as a joke diary, funny thoughts or observations. I think I told you I'm pursuing a career in stand-up comedy. No, you didn't. I think I did. I just hope my death makes more sense than my life. feel to have to come here does it help to have someone to talk to I think I felt better when I was locked up in the hospital and have you thought more about why you were locked up who knows I was wondering if you could ask the doctor to increase my medication. Arthur, you're on seven different medications. Surely they must be doing something. I just don't want to feel so bad anymore. Well, here's the problem, Arthur. Uh, we don't have funding anymore. And um, we're going to have to stop meeting. Um, and I don't know when funding's coming back right. for the social services. Um, and so Gotham City is on the brink of just kind of failing its most desperate and needy citizens because social services are crumbling. Um, and I think that that instigates 
uh, Arthur somewhat down a hole because now this anchor is gone and um, there's nothing left for him to hold on to. And so he's just going to, He's just going to fall down that hole and and um, whatever that hole leads to is uh, is what he ends up doing. And then obviously those aspects manifest in the film, killing people, etc. And it's all it, it all hinges on the fact that he no longer has this safety net of social services. Right. He mentions later that he's stopped taking his medication um, and that he feels that change. He doesn't have that that person, that confidant um, that he can share his feelings with. I'm I'm sure he stopped doing his journaling. <laughs> you know, he has he has none of these safety nets, like you're like you're saying. So so I think one of the points of this movie is that society has failed him, and that doesn't justify what he's done. But I do think it's a message in the film that um, people who do have mental illness um, often just want someone to listen to them, want some resources, uh, want respect. Uh, the people in the mental hospital where I worked, they just wanted, they were just people, you know, they, they, they just wanted some, some help and, um, and really they wanted to be respected as human beings. And, and I think that that's one of the messages of this film is that it's easy to label people and that uh, people don't like being labeled. Yeah. I, I, and it, it just, it goes to show how much uh, these these issues, the psychological disorders, etc., um, require help. They, I, these, I'm I'm sure these folks just needed some help, and sometimes immediate family members or friends can't provide that help because they're not equipped to provide that help, and so you need these social safety nets in order to help. The people who can't help themselves. And and one of the, I think, brilliant lines in this movie is when uh, Wayne Sr. is being interviewed and he says the people who haven't made successes of themselves are basically lazy, worthless jokers. And that's where he gets the inspiration for his own name is he's taking, he's taking this label and saying, hey, if you're going to call me that, then that's how I'm going to act. Yeah, that. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, everybody. Who cares about a coronavirus? Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You'll yeah. be fine. You don't need resources he or said, medicine. He said sarcastically. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you had laid out you had laid out this idea of the mental illness in in society um using a model that is so eloquent within within psychology, and that's the biopsychosocial model. You want to break that? Do you want to break that uh, down? That w- the aspects that you saw of the biopsychosocial model in the film? Yeah. So, um, so for a long time, um, you know, mis- mental illness was misunderstood, and and the idea was, you know, you're you being possessed by a demon or you're a witch or something like that is going on. And then for a while, Mm -hmm. the idea was, you know, it's all uh, medical neurotransmitters are, you know, not functioning correctly in your brain. And I think the, the modern both medical and psychological view is that um, 
what we call the biopsychosocial model, which is that all of us um, are a combination of factors that are partially biological, partially psychological, mm-hmm. so things like our personality yep. traits, and partially social. We are the products yep. of our culture and how we were raised and um, how other people treat us. And so the simplification of saying um, Joker is Joker because of X, that's definitely um, going to be an oversimplification. So um, it's this complicated web of factors that makes all of us who we are. Yeah, I agree. And um, so, again, so the biological stuff that you saw then in the film that we could uh, put a pin on. So it's possible that he um, inherited some tendencies towards schizophrenia. We know that schizophrenia is at least partially uh, genetically linked. People who have schizophrenia usually have someone within one generation of their family who also have symptoms. So so if his mother um, was his biological mother, um, that's certainly more possible. We also, again, don't know um, what the biology was of his his father, but we know that he seems to have some kind of mental illness that um, medicine helps. So um, there might be some kind right. of uh, neurotransmitter imbalance for him that that's biologically driving some of his symptoms. Um, in terms of psychology, mm-hmm. we have um, how does he interpret what's going on? Does he perceive people as making fun of him? Does he perceive people as potential friends versus potential enemies? Um, his lack of ability to communicate with other people uh, is certainly part of his psychology. And um, I want to talk a little bit more about personality in a minute, but um, just to finish out the biopsychosocial model, the, the social aspect, of course, is something that um, we've already discussed today. You know, the, the stigmatization, yeah. um, the self-fulfilling prophecy of if people assume I'm a violent person, then what's stopping me from being a violent person? The lack of social resources. Um, no one really effectively listens to him or helps him. Yeah, he's a he's alone. Yes, he's a he's a, a loner, and um, loneliness is a pretty tragic drug. Um, can literally kill you. And uh, he's alone in the movie. Um, yeah, he has his mother, but his mother lied to him for a long, 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 long time. Um, and he eventually says, you're not worth it to me at all. He is so lonely that he creates a fake relationship with a woman and then creepily goes into her apartment and like does the gun to the head, uh, thing. And he- I, I know it's a callback to um, their f- f- quote unquote first meeting right. where she does it. But it's it's definitely but, creepy over the line. Yeah, yeah. Considering that is if you don't if you think the movie is real and all of these things are actually happening like. Man, she'd be moving out oh. that day. <laughs> um. So he definitely, uh, he's definitely lonely. And we see that also in his reaching out to the Waynes, um, wanting a father figure, wanting a potential brother. Uh, yeah. Potential, yeah. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Brother. Yeah. He wants a family. 
he he does he wants a cohesive family unit that will bring him joy and validation um things that he had basically is not receiving yeah. because he is a um gig clown uh, you know, he he pay, plays a gig clown um and uh obviously clowns don't get a lot of respect because they're creepy right. creepy a creepy af um, <laughs> but i think that he's drawn to the clown thing because i think at that point he's genuinely trying to please other people and to get some positive feedback and you know that's why he likes the the gig with the kids especially because you know they're laughing, they're, uh, they're the laughing hospital, yeah. and, and singing along um and that's mm-hmm. the job that actually causes him the most heartbreak when he gets fired yeah because he was trying to protect himself and the the gun fell out of his the gun fell out of his pants yeah. and he's just like, oh, no. So I, I don't think that you know, he was originally is... a clown because he was a creepy clown. I think he was originally a clown because he, <laughs> he genuinely wanted to be like uh, a, a kid clown. Yeah, sure. I, I, I will say that even kid clowns are oh, creepy. I totally AF. agree with you. Um, yeah. Or like the- <laughs> <laughs> Whether he went into there. Yeah, I don't think he went into the profession to be creepy. Right. But yeah, he... He strikes he strikes me as um or going in he strikes me as like choosing that as a profession, so to speak, because um he also has the laugh and the laugh disorder. It's a job that he can keep um, with his condition. Yeah, it's a job that he can keep with his condition because he could just say that, you know, I'm I'm just laughing because this is how I am. I'm a clown. Um, and sort of mask it as a mental illness. Um, I do want to bring up one last point about the stigma and all of this talk about the the biopsychosocial model is um, you see the stigma very clearly in the beginning of the film when he is on the bus um, and he's sitting behind a little boy and the little boy is looking at him and he's doing um, really good bit comedy. Um, you know, making his face do funny things. Uh, and the kid is laughing. And um, the mother turns around and is like, can you stop bothering my kid? Right. Um, and it's just like, whoa, lady, calm down. All right. You're on a bus. What do you expect is going to yeah. happen? First of all. Second of all, he starts laughing uncontrollably because he can't. And so he hands her this card that explains his condition because he can't talk when he's laughing. Which is a which is so cruel. Just on a side note, um, the fact that we can't talk while we're laughing is just a, a super bummer. <laughs> so people are always asking, "Why are you laughing?" And you're like, "I can't." <laughs> um, and he hands her the card, and she looks at it, and she scoffs. She like visibly rolls her eyes. She sighs and scoffs so loudly, and you're like, "Jeez, lady." Yeah. And, you know, society's just, you know, keeping him, kicking him down, kicking him when he's down, figuratively and literally. Okay, so that's it. You're crazy. That's your defense for killing three young men? No. They couldn't carry a tune to save their lives. Oh, why is everybody so upset about these guys? 
If it was me dying on the sidewalk, you'd walk right over me. I pass you every day and you don't notice me. But these guys, what, because Thomas Wayne went cried about them on TV? You have a problem with Thomas Wayne. Too. Yes, I do. Have you seen what it's like out there, Murray? Do you ever actually leave the studio? Everybody just yells and screams at each other. Nobody's civil anymore. Nobody thinks what it's like to be the other guy. You think men like Thomas Wayne ever think what it's like to be someone like me? To be somebody but themselves? They don't. They think that we'll just sit there and take it like good little boys. That we won't werewolf and go wild. You finished? I mean, there's so much self-pity, Arthur. You sound like you're making excuses for killing those young men. Not everybody, and I'll tell you this, not everyone is awful. You're awful, Murray. Me? I'm awful? Oh, yeah? How am I awful? Playing my video. Inviting me on the show. You just wanted to make fun of me. You're just like the rest of them. You don't know the first thing about me, pal. Look what happened because of what you did, what it led to. There were riots out there. Two policemen are in critical condition. You're <laughs> laughing. You're laughing. Someone was killed today because of what you did. I know. How about another joke, Murray? No, I think we've had enough of your jokes. What do you get? I don't think so. When you cross I think a mentally ill loner with a society that abandons him and treats him like trash. Call the police. I'm Gene. telling you what you get. Call the police. You get what you that's true. I mean, you know, to to defend her, you know, I, I think she's probably genuinely trying to protect her child from a creepy stranger. Um, but I do think her, her that's her reaction fair. That's fine. A little bit uncalled for. Maybe a bit overreactive, right. but um, but her reaction to his card and his right, condition, she, she I think, have, was one hundred percent. She could rude. have some empathy for him for sure. Yeah. Just imagine, just imagine having a, a laughing disorder like that. Right. right? It, it. I think um, a, a sort of parallel to that is people who have Tourette's. Um, sure. Really yeah. Can't control some of their actions or or verbalizations, and and it really is mm -hmm. kind of socially embarrassing. Yeah, and um, you know how many pe how many um, folks with Tourette's carry around cards like, oh, I'm so sorry, I have Tourette's right now, or I have Tourette's right now. Jeez, what am I saying? I have Tourette's. Please forgive my outbursts. Like, you know, people don't carry around cards like right. that. We should just be understanding of people, and um, you know, maybe reflect before we make judgments. Absolutely, right. So you um, did mention personality. Right. And I am super excited to hear about this one because I um, I have never heard this before. So what's this uh, idea about personality that you spot in the film? Well, I'm teaching a class right now on the psychology of personality. and Online? Uh, yes. <laughs> it was originally face-to-face. -face. Now it is online. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we talk about various um, ways to think about personality. And one of those ways, not the only way is a trait perspective. So what are some interesting uh, personality right. traits that we could um, measure and define and, and use to predict behavior? So in um, right. 2002, um, an article came out identifying 
three personality traits that um, the argument was that these three traits go together. And so they're usually correlated. If you have one, you often will have the other two. And they are okay. associated with uh, criminal behavior. They're associated with cheating okay. and um, general lack of empathy toward other people. Um, they're associated with what we call mate poaching, which is trying to steal somebody else's husband or wife. And um, the three traits... Or, or just partner, just oh, absolutely, partner, yeah. right? Could be a girlfriend and stuff. Um, okay, and and so the the cluster of traits is called the dark triad because wow, that's such an yeah, ominous absolutely name. ominous is the perfect word. Um, and the idea is that if you have someone who has high levels of of even two out of these three traits, that they're they're probably much more dangerous now most people Oof, most people okay. don't reach kind of a clinical or extreme level of these three traits um but okay. the average person you know could vary in these three traits and and that might um be a warning sign that the person is potentially um not going to uh be your best friend and so i thought it would be <laughs> fun to talk about what these three traits are Okay. Yeah. So what are the traits? Okay. So the first one is called Machiavellianism. And of course that's named after uh, the Italian philosopher Machiavelli who wrote The Prince. Mm-hmm. And um, right. and the, the book of course um, was all about how to be a ruler, but it was basically um, suggesting that the best rulers are really manipulative of others. And if you had to have loyalty from your people through either love or fear. You should always choose fear. <laughs> so it's it's basically how to like lie and be a horrible despot. Um, and so ma- Machiavellianism yeah. now is a personality trait is the idea that you are someone who just kind of um, implicitly manipulates other people. You see other people as a means to an end. What can they do for me? Um, and you're kind of a schemer. You like to, um, it's kind of like the long okay. con. You, you like to yeah. lie to mm-hmm. people. You don't really care if it hurts them. Um, you don't really have any kind of um, empathy for other people. It's all about what's in it for me. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Machiavellianism. Yep. Oh, man. I just butchered that. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's okay. Uh, so Machiavellianism is the first one. Um, I think we can see classic uh examples of how the joker or joker is portrayed um not only in this film but in in lots of other films certainly in the comics um the fact that he comes up with these schemes that he's constantly um planning on destroying the entire city you know (laughs) he he certainly um wants this kind of like fame and notoriety and he doesn't care who gets in his way so i think he he checks the box for machiavellianism Okay. Yeah. I, um, I would agree. Yeah. Okay. So the second one I think is not so cut and dry when it comes to Joker or at least how he's portrayed in this particular film. The second one is narcissism, which is interesting because, uh, his mother was theoretically diagnosed as having narcissistic personality disorder. Mm -hmm. So narcissism, when it comes to the dark triad is the idea that you perceive yourself as the smartest person in the room you perceive that you are an expert on any topic. And even if you're not an expert, you can fake it so well that people won't notice. And (laughs) you believe that um, no one else is really worthy of you. You are basically like 
the king of the castle in any situation. And you're sort of this undiscovered uh-huh. genius. And if only if okay. only people paid attention to you, they would see that you are absolutely amazing. So I think it's interesting to think there are a couple of qualities that apply to Joker in terms of narcissism. But in this particular film, I don't think he's portrayed as particularly narcissistic. He seems not not to really like himself very much. Um, maybe this is probably just a stretch, but I'm just listening to you explore the the features of the the um, personality trait. Um, maybe he thinks he is funnier than he actually is and and um i mean he sort of expresses this in an in a sort of roundabout way to murray uh at the end of the at the end of the movie like that's a good um, point he does in his fantasies he sees himself as like the entire crowd at the comedy club is like laughing um he perceives yeah. himself as as being very successful with Sophie when that's all in his mind. So, right. so I guess you could argue that the fantasy version of his life is pretty narcissistic. I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I think that I think that fits it. Um, so, I think we can. I think we maybe not as narcissistic as his mother. Uh, according to her diagnosis, but, and maybe, and that, that feeds that I think feeds her. I'm in the camp that, that thinks that, um, that's all true. Um, that feeds her delusion of being with Thomas Wayne when she actually wasn't. And I think other portrayals of Joker, um, show him as being more narcissistic. If you look at the comics. Oh yeah. um, Yeah. 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 That's very true. He's where he features, um, I think he's portrayed as more narcissistic in in those versions. So I think we could check Machiavellianism. I think we can. I think it's safe to check narcissism. You kind of talked me into that one. And then, okay. <laughs> and then the <laughs> third trait in the dark triad is psychopathology. Um, and I think this one is probably pretty strong. Um, so psychopathology. You know, the term psychopath is used um, by so many different fields and and in so many different ways. It's it can be defined um, yeah. in a variety of ways. I think criminal justice defined it's it's slightly differently than psychology defines it, and even social psychology sure. versus clinical psychology, I think, have slightly different definitions. But in terms of the dark triad and how it was originally developed in this article, psychopathology is a basic lack of empathy for other people, mm-hmm. the desire for notoriety and fame, and impulsiveness. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, the impulsiveness goes against the long-term scheming that we saw with Machiavellianism, but these two can be correlated. So you can have a little bit of both. Um, So I I think that certainly we see a lot of examples of psychopathology as defined in the dark triad in Joker. He certainly seems to have Uh, a lack of empathy. He doesn't care much about really anyone else. Um, no, nope. especially as the movie progresses, he seems to be really enjoying the attention and fame that he is getting. The fact that he's started at, this entire and movie. at the very end. Yeah, at the very end, getting on top of the uh, police yes, car. Absolutely. Uh, and just sort of and he's like the hero of basking. The yeah, I, I'm <laughs> I'm motioning in 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 uh, to wind here in our video <laughs> chat. Um, 
you know, he's just like basking right. in the glory. Holding his hands up and this kind of like Christ-like type of uh, posture. Uh-huh. Yep. His, his dancing with joy that he's finally um, sort of led this army of clowns who are going to kill the rich, right? Like he's he's become yep. um, the icon for this certain population yeah. of the city. And that's the Joker. That That is the, the person he becomes in this dc world right so um so i think we see all three of these traits that we call the dark triad in joker i would agree uh the impulsiveness too i I wanted to add um we see his impulsiveness with um murdering his ex-co-worker um uh he just kind of just like you know i'm just gonna do this right now um, one could argue that it was a pul- impulsive to murder his mother. Yep. Um, he could have been thinking about it, but it is certainly is surprising when you first yeah. see it. Sorry, spoilers. Penny. Penny I always hated that name. You know, he used to tell me that my laugh was a condition, that there was something wrong with me. There isn't. That's the real me. used to think that my life was a tragedy but now i realize it's a comedy it's probably impulsive to go to wayne manor it's definitely impulsive to stick your thumbs in somebody's mouth that's not social distancing do not do that do and even when we're done with social distancing do not stick your thumbs in a stranger's mouth, especially if it's a little yeah. boy. Any, there are issues, so many issues with that. Any, don't do that. Child, uh, don't put anything. <laughs> and so so that that's very impulsive. And then um, it's also impulsive that he goes in and um, sneaks into the opera uh, to uh, confront Thomas yep. Wayne in the bathroom. Uh, so there's a lot of impulsivity with Arthur Fleck. That is for yeah. sure. Um, and and that sort of mirrors his comic book incarnations because um, he I mean, there are definitely different comic incarnations, just like there are different film incarnations and other media incarnations of the Joker. But um, throughout many of the DC comic run of him being um, perhaps Batman's most famous um arch uh, enemy is that he is constantly trying to do things that um break up the status quo um bother batman like literally just like bother right. him 
Um, and there was a, oh man, I can't remember what what it is. Maybe a listener can can ping me on this one. But um, there is a, and it may be a Mark Hamill, um, Joker voicing Joker thing. But um, there is something. It's just is something that I I read recently. It was just like. Joker doesn't actually want to kill that's Batman. That's absolutely true. He, he just, he wants somebody to play that's, with. That's exactly right. He and wants Batman's attention. Yes, Batman's attention. And so he does these impulsive right. things to get Batman's attention. Right. Yes, okay. I'm, I'm glad that um, somebody else. No, you're absolutely um, right. You see this in a couple <laughs> of storylines, in the cartoon, in the comics. Um, yeah, and right. you're absolutely right. Mark Hamill as the voice of Joker is, is fantastic. Um, so. Yeah, I said at the top of the show, he's my favorite oh, yeah. Joker. So, um, so we see the Joker or Joker um, planning all of these schemes to get Batman's attention, like to to get Batman to come to where he is to stop a nuclear bomb or something like that. But he doesn't actually want Batman to die um, because it's like his his brother, right? He wants he yeah. wants. Like you said, sort of a playmate. He wants this kind of brother figure. That's what's fun for him. And for Batman to go away, now he's bored. Yeah, that would be that would be tragic, I think. Oh. For 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 Joker. From his perspective. (laughs) Imagine if like Riddler came out on top and like actually killed Batman. You think I, I, I would imagine Joker would just be like, all right, Riddler, you're dead. One of the Sorry. interesting dynamics between the Joker and Harley Quinn is um, she's kind of his like girlfriend slash assistant. And um, yeah. one of the classic scenes in their dynamic is that he's got this um, kind of scheme to try to trap Batman and and he can't really quite figure out how to make it work. And she solves the problem. She figures out how to make this work. It's going to be like hanging Batman upside down over some piranhas. And he, she figures out, she figures out how to get this to happen. And he is absolutely enraged that she figured something out that he couldn't figure out. Right? He wants to be the the person on top. He wants to be the one um, figuring all of this out. So again, it goes yeah. into that narcissism. Yeah. But um, he really he he seems to be driven by the game, and I think that's one of the reasons that he's called the Joker. Hmm. Okay. I like that. It has nothing to do with cards. <laughs> well, Jack Nicholson's Joker does. <laughs> oh, I don't get me started on Jack Nicholson's Joker. <laughs> if we're Joker. talking about all oh, the movie God. incarnations of the Joker, we have to go Oh my gosh. I do not like what they did <laughs> with that. Okay, okay, we won't talk about that. Uh, have you ever seen the devil dance in the pale moonlight no man you didn't kill his parents get out of here jack napier <laughs> okay so i'm getting that you don't like the jack nicholson joker he's fine he's fine it's just i don't like the retconning so to speak of the um origins i think tim burton tried to do too much by smashing the origins together okay um, we didn't need another movie of Batman's origins, I suppose. Although that was the first. That one. was uh, it. Really, kind of set yeah, up the that franchise. Was the, yeah, I do like Caesar Romero's um, trickster Joker. 
obviously, who's supposed to be campy, played right. by um, a really wonderful actor who was like, no, you may not shave my mustache. It's mine. <laughs> Paint over right. it. That is um, some, some uh, classic chutzpah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, um, yeah, no, garbage Jared Leto. Uh, as I said at the yeah. top of the show, garbage. Heath Ledger did a great oh, job, though. Heath Ledger could pull it off. Heath Ledger, I think, is my favorite movie Joker. Over Joaquin Phoenix? Um, over Joaquin Phoenix, oh, wow. yeah. Okay, that's a state. Um, and it's because he's he plays an anarchist version yeah. of Joker. And I think that plays well with um, Batman's need for order. I have to say that I found... Uh, in, in the Dark Knight yeah, trilogy. Yeah, I found the Heath Ledger Joker... Um, more entertaining, more 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 <laughs> exciting. Um, but you know, of course, the Joaquin Phoenix Joker, in some ways, seems kind of like more realistic, and I think that's one of the reasons. More realistic, so and I think we're supposed to, as the audience, view him as a tragic antihero, yeah. as opposed to Heath Ledger's Joker. Who is supposed to just be a psychopath. Right. An anarchistic psychopath, right? And we're not supposed to feel any empathy for him. We're supposed to be all 100% on Batman's side because Batman wants to bring order and justice to Gotham City. And there's this one guy who has weird scars on his face and paints his face red and, and, and white who wants to blow stuff up, and uh, we need to take care of him. We're not supposed to feel any sort of sympathy or empathy for Heath Ledger, but we're supposed to struggle with our heart that Arthur Fleck is dealing with this. Even though he kills a lot of people, we're still going to be like, man, you know, that guy, he's just had a lot of stuff thrown at him, and, you know, sometimes he's just going to, sometimes people just, you know, you poke a bear, and the bear's going to swipe it. So I think one of the brilliant... Tiger King. Oh, jeez. <laughs> no episodes on Tiger King. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, one of the brilliant things about this film is not just the psychology of the film, but the psychology of reaction to the film. Right. So yeah, yeah. I saw this in the theater um, when it originally came out with a friend. And near the end of the film, when um, sort of the, the people's rebellion is ramping up, several people in the theater were cheering like yeah like we're on the joker side and we want him to go out and you know murder a bunch of people and my friend just walked out of that theater kind of like traumatized and she's saying like how could people be on his side and Mm -hmm. you know i i sort of got it again i'm not saying that i justify his actions or that that this balance right yeah well you don't need to justify But I think the reason that right. the film was um, so jarring for so many people is that you saw his side of the story. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which, like we said earlier at the start of the show, we you don't get to you don't get to see that sort of uh, that sort of psychology from villains right. too often. Um, generally speaking, most villains are. Uh, characterized as um misanthropes maladapted 
or slighted again, uh, by the the hero, the protagonist, and so they they seek revenge for that slight. I mean, um, Killian from uh, Iron Man three is a good example of that. Like you know, Tony Stark pissed him off uh, one day, and um, you know, tried to set fire to his life. So you you just it, there a lot of villains are one dimensional in that way and they're only connected to the hero whereas we see Arthur here as a complete multi-dimensional human yeah. that is tragic and that's why people were cheering yeah. because oh and also the message was like 90 the 99% versus right, the 1% like kill the rich you know yep this this whole rich need to the 1% needs to go yeah. down right. sort of message right but i think that so I mean that's why people were cheering. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, and I'm I'm excited about more movies that maybe kind of take this approach of people are complicated creatures. Um, I, we saw this a little bit with Black Panther and the main villain um, being yeah. Killmonger, and you kind of get it. Like he got a raw deal. His father was murdered. Did, yeah. His whole philosophy is like we should be using our resources to help people in other countries and at the end of the movie they're like yeah good point we agree with you (laughs) You (laughs) that was kind of a twist to this classic villain um usually you don't end the movie by going yeah we're gonna go ahead and do what you recommended (laughs) so i think i'm really looking forward to seeing more of this kind of movie where we see humans are not these two-dimensional characters that we've seen in movies for years and years um the more complicated the character can be i think the more it will resonate with the audience yeah and i think the the better story te- storytelling yep. you have if you can um humanize even the people that are maybe on the wrong end of the moral spectrum but still humanize them obviously not give them a pass for what they for what they did, I mean, Joker's still a bad right. guy. Still should should go to prison, or at least you know some sort of um, uh, ba, 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 mental, uh, mental, yeah, some sort of institution, psychiatric institution that is on lockdown. Yeah, he needs to be in Arkham. You know, Shutter Island, Shutter Island style, yeah, or yeah, Arkham, yeah. That's uh, that's in universe, <laughs> so yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, none of this Martin Scorsese stuff, uh, but yeah, some some sort of psychiatric uh, facility to where well, that's what it appears he is uh, at the end. But he's all walking out, you know, with blood on his feet, and he's just like, "Whoa, what would he do? No, not that psychiatrist." Oh. Right. So I want to continue with the Your Thoughts segment where I mention the various things that um, are uh, thoughts of yours, get it, Uh, on the various films and what you might use them for in a psychological sense, those those sorts of things, of course. Of course, of course. And so I want to thank uh, the comments that I got, again, in the STP Facebook group. wonderful thoughts as always so Sabrina Ryder 
And Kristen B. mentioned that uh, the film is great to discuss how uh, mental illness is portrayed, especially the stigma that is associated with it. And it, and 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 it it pretty good as as uh, we've we've heard in this episode that the stigma is pretty real, right? Um, Rich Samora. Um, making a, a very good point of, of saying you should have a trigger warning or a content warning if you're going to show this in class, which is a very good idea. You always want to give your uh, students the choice to um, grapple with such a, such a gnarly film such as Joker. Bob Dubois talks about how he would use the film as a way to explore the biopsychosocial model uh, and the factors that are associated with uh, psychological disorders, which I think is um, pretty good, especially with the content of the film. Lyra Stein uh, mentioned that uh, she used the film to focus on schizotypal personality disorder, which is a personality disorder that um, has some psychosis features to it, I believe. Thanks again, everyone, for sharing your thoughts. Your thoughts is a fun little segment that I like to keep doing. Uh, I'm definitely going to uh, keep this as a running segment. I appreciate all of those individuals who uh, contributed to this episode. Keep letting me know your thoughts. Well, I want to thank Wind, good friend, for joining me to discuss Joker. I think that was a real fun um, chat, and I, I, I learned something. A good episode is when I learn oh, something, great, um, that I can then take with me. So, Wind, um, while you say goodbye, um, is there anything you'd like to plug um, where where um, folks can find out more about uh, Joker. Well, I will definitely take the opportunity to remind folks that uh, you can go to any major bookseller and find the book called The Joker Psychology. The subtitle is Evil Clowns and the Women Who Love Them. And uh, this is a series of books on the psychology of pop culture edited by my friend uh, Travis Langley. And in The Joker Psychology, I have a chapter on the abusive relationship between Joker and Harley Quinn. Yes, I, I love it. I'm, I gotta get I gotta get my hands on that uh, one of these days. Maybe it's uh, gonna be coming up as a um, COVID birthday <laughs> present. I don't know because um, I think that's what my birthday's turned out to be, just like my son's. Oh, sete. Anyways, listener, thanks for all of the support that you have given um, over these last several episodes. This was um, lucky episode number thirteen where we talked about Joker. Um, and, uh, the last two episodes I've given you a challenge and that challenge has been share this podcast with five of your friends, colleagues, coworkers, um, housemates during your self isolation. Uh, the internet still works for this sharing challenge. So five of your friends, family members, or colleagues, Hey, 
while you're in your isolation in your house with all of these people that you live with, um, just like, you know, instead of putting headphones in, just play it on speaker. Uh, and then everyone can listen. Sit to around, it. sit around and the fire and, and listen just yeah. like an old time radio. Yeah, old time radio. I love that win. Thank you so much. Uh, so um, if you let other people know, this podcast will grow. Man, I love rhyming. Um, so five friends. The challenge is still on. Please keep sharing, liking, subscribing, etc. Um, the show is is fairly unique, and I really enjoy making it. So we appreciate all of the support. And until the next episode, thanks for listening. Thank you.